The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. Now on 94.7 The Pulse, the weekly wrap-up and word on the street. This is 11 on Friday. Hello, Vic. How are you? Oh, Mitchell, how are you? Now, uh, this is a bit unusual for people listening, but you're actually driving us today, so... I've just been speaking over an open mic, Mitchell. Is that what's happened to you? No, you're right. Just bring that music down. down And we'll get rid of that. That's fine. (laughs) It's uh, really tough, I think, the first time you panel and uh, operate the controls, but as I've been saying to you, you've got to do it sooner or later, otherwise you'll never never learn. I could just sit there and do it for you, but what would be the fun in that? So this is a bit like when you go flying, isn't it? And eventually the student has to go solo for the first time, and that's what you're sort of doing. This is worse than flying. Mitchell, this is worse. Um, (laughs) No chance of... (laughs) I don't tend to get embarrassed with flying. It's it's kind of save you... Save yourself or not. Mm. I think if I thought back to my flying experience, I think the first day I went solo is more memorable than the first day I did a live radio program and panelled for myself here. I think flying a plane solo was uh, a little bit more of a significant event. Where did that take place? Uh, down at Bowenheads Airport. Okay. Um, and it was a very sunny day, I suppose. That's what they always do, don't they? Send the students solo when the weather conditions are favourable. What what was it? What sort of aircraft? 172, Cessna 172. Good good little... Great plane. plane. I mean, it's the most popular plane in the world, isn't it? Look, it it is for a reason, and um, they're they're very and they're good on maintenance too, and they and they lift and they're and they're reliable. They're, they've shown their reliability. We've got a lot of modern technology coming in now, though, and um, that's helping to uh, that's helping to um, lower the cost and and also the reliability reliability has gone up with well, the, with the little. Rotax motors and things like that. Well, was, I mean, the plane that I went solo in, I think it was built in either 1974 or 1976. It was a Model N Cessna. Oh, yeah. um, but the technology they have now, I mean, when you look at on the, the website, the new ones, the glass cockpits and all that, it's, uh, it's quite surreal compared to what I had, which was all the sort of old-fashioned gauges and things. But great experience. But um, the reason why I mention it is because um, it's sort of similar, I suppose, panelling a radio show solo for the first time but uh, probably not quite as significant as flying a plane. But I do remember the first time I also went live here on The Pulse for the very first time and, uh, yeah, taking that signal from the studio next door, that was a pretty nerve-wracking time and doing the weather and all that. But um, you, uh, you shake off the nerves and you get on with it. Well, that's what it's about today, so everyone's got to cut me a bit of slack. I'm sure the listeners will be very forgiving, and uh, I might just, uh, if anything goes wrong, I'll run around and uh, quickly push the right button Thank for you. Thank you. Thank you. That'll be just like my instructor of, of yore, which I, I soloed in, uh, my first solo flight was in Nairobi, Kenya. Really? So you did flying lessons over there? Yes, I did, and um, Nairobi airstrips at five and a half thousand feet. Wow. How does the Cessna go? Well, it was actually quite well, quite well. I mean, you had to, before takeoff, um, because it's so, the air's so thin, you had to lean the mixture before you took off or the engine would be over rich when you applied power. Yeah, so you had to lean the motor at the the holding point. So how much did you have to lean? Oh, just by ear. You know, just, you know, I mean, we've got gauges these days, but those days it was, and you would still do it by ear. Do you do that trick of sort of turning it back until the engine just starts to sort of go down, then you twist it a a few times back in? Just a bit more in, yeah. yeah. You've got to lower that fuel 
air ratio, you've got to get the fuel out of it or else it'll just be rich cut when you apply the power. It's so high. So I did my first flying. Um, I can still remember looking around the plane, but when you took off there at Nairobi, you would do a circuit over the Nairobi National Park at the time. Amazing. So you were over the top of elephants and all sorts of things and lions and all sorts of things. It wouldn't have been a good place to have an engine failure, Mitchell. <laughs> because you'd land probably safely, but then a lion would come and uh, the, yeah, well, they were, they were all there at the time in '79. They were all there. There was there was lots of wildlife around, and um, I had a friend, and he went out to put the rubbish out in Nairobi, and there was a leopard in his rubbish bin. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, the the actual runway was it a grass strip? No, or? no, no, no. It was a big international type runway. Uh, well, I was at Nairobi Wilson, which was the light aircraft airport, but um, there was Embakazi up the road, which was the international strip. And the actual uh, the British brought the um, the Concorde out for uh, high level trials out there. So yeah, to, uh, uh, you know, something to do with the tropics and things like that. And when you were taking off at that altitude, what was it like for the takeoff performance of the aircraft? Oh, was it diminished? Oh, because, yeah, much so. Yeah, much so. You needed a lo- much longer runway at that at that altitude. It's the same if you go up to Mount Hotham up here. It's about 4,300 or 4,400 and, and you take quite a long time to get that, that uh, ability to rotate, which is the same speed on the clock, but you're actually moving faster because the air's thinner. Mm. So you've got to go... The, the result of that is you've got to go further and anything at high altitude or hot you need extra you've got to allow for extra and look a lot of people go through the charts but as you get on on a few years you 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 just it's a bit like working the panel you know you've got to you know that you've got to allow quite a bit more and things like that so and then if you put a couple of passengers in the back you'd probably be again again that's another determining factor gross weight and Mm. you know it's it's going to be uh, it can be quite critical in those situations. So flying down on the islands in Bass Strait is always a good... Uh, it has been a great memory for me. I didn't... I, I, I did it f- for on various occasions down there. I had a friend down there. He was a... He soldier settled an island down there but didn't have a plane. And I took... Um, I took him down there a lot uh, in all sorts of weather. And uh, the winds down there are horrific. Uh, and it certainly does. It certainly does sharpen you up. It throws you in at the deep end, and um, and you have to learn to read the weather and the winds and things like that. But they were good years. And um, years later, when we were burying him, uh, we flew the casket down, and he was being buried on Flinders Island. And I looked to my right, and there was a tall man. I said, "What are you doing here?" He said, I married his daughter. And that was the um, the Premier, Ted Bailey. Ah, yes. So, um, yeah, Tommy, Tommy was a man uh, that did get around. And, um, yeah, a uh, great guy, Tommy Jubb. Valet Tommy Jubb. He was a, he was a, he was a terrific bloke. He owned a, he owned a um, little house on Long Island. And it, it was a... a look... It's hard to describe the pristineness of this island. Long and rocky outcrops on it, and um, the uh, just to be clear, this is Long Island Bass Bass, Bass Strait. Oh, sorry, not Long yeah, Island, New York. Let's let's set the scene here. It's Long Island Bass Strait in the middle of the Roaring Forties, and the floorboards were made of um, the uh, paper bark. Can you believe it? Paper bark uh, planks. And, you know, you can imagine how big the paper bark would have to be to mill a plank out of it. And 
and they were quite thick. And there was all sorts of stories. It was the first building, or one of the first buildings on the Ferno Group, and it was the police station when the colony was called Van Diemen's Land. Yeah. So it's a very, very old building. And he, we were, I was there one night. And look, I, I, Tommy and I did a lot of flying and I learned to fly down there and I learned to uh, mix with the locals and love that area. Um, but I also learned to drink rum down there, Mitchell. And one night we were sitting by the fire there at the old house on Long and he said, oh, I said, what's in there, Jubby? He said, that's the maid's room, old man. Everyone's old man on Flinders Island. I okay. Said, oh, okay. Yeah, the wind was howling. I said, tell me about the maid. He said, well, um, old Barrett used to have an island up the road and I don't know who he was, but it, it was the days when Munro uh, was the, the, uh, the pirate in the area and he would put out false lights. And so the ships transiting between Tasmania and up to uh, then um, Botany Bay yes. would run aground and they would plunder them. So he, Barrett, actually, uh, oh, well, kidnapped a, a lady there and brought her back and put her in the, the pen and she was quite insane. And um, the man who was, oh, oh, maybe I've got, maybe Barrett was on long, don't, don't quote me on this, folks. Barrett was on long, maybe, and he went and picked her up and brought her back where she later passed away in that house uh, and in that room. And Tommy said, that's the maid's room. She was the maid for, for long. That's the maid's room, old man. He said, I've seen her. I've been here late at night and watched her walk across the room. And I said, oh, come on, Tom. Spin, you know, pull the other leg. He said, no. That's her room, that's where she's... I said, well, I don't believe it, I'm going to sleep in there tonight. Well, I can tell you, Mitchell, I don't think... I, I, I slept with one eye open all <laughs> night. It was full of junk, and, and the noises on that, on that island with that wind. Mm. Certainly, yeah. But they were terrific adventures for a young man. They were wonderful. You know, we don't talk, sort of tend to... It was just another day in the, day in the life then, but... Um, this, this day and age, I think it'd be quite exceptional, some of the things we did in those days. Pre-social media. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, with social media now, there's evidence of everything that you do, isn't there? Because someone's got a camera out recording and then they accidentally upload it to a public forum and then, as we know, people get into a lot of trouble. Well, that's probably true, but I probably put it in modern text. You'd probably say... Um, here I am in the maid's room, acting scared, doing a selfie and put it on Instagram. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. It reminds me of a conversation we had with Geelong Jail on the program last month because they do these paranormal activity tours and we spoke to someone who uh, is a medium and uh, they run the tours there at the Geelong Jail and one of the things you can do when it's running is you can spend a night at Geelong Jail. And I'd imagine it would be a bit similar to the situation that you're talking about there where yep. you just sleep there with one eye open and, uh, yeah, you'd be a bit nervous. I mean, this person said, oh, we have sceptics that come in that don't really believe in the supernatural, and fair enough, but um, apparently when they do go in, they become very disturbed. So, you know, never know. One day after COVID, we might be able to go in and do a night tour of the Geelong Jail and just see what it's really about. It's hard to know about all that. I, I tend to believe, but I wouldn't quote 
you know, I tend to believe, but I wouldn't quote. Well, I think you've got to, with some things you want to really see it with your own eye, don't you, to really believe, mm. to have it confirmed it's, to you. That it's, it's one of those things that you feel that, you, have you ever felt the hair stand up on the back of your neck? Very rarely. Haven't you? I have on a few occasions where you think something's not right. When it's in a, a bad situation. I think I had it all night down there in, in the maid's room on, on Long Island that night. Um, but uh, And speaking of the wind, uh, to sort of connect it back, uh, there is some very damaging winds forecast, I believe, this afternoon. Oh, was up right? in the central ranges around Dalesford and that sort oh, of area. Okay. I hope we're not going to have power power outages and things like I that. I hope not, because some people down here, they had their power out for about a week, which nowadays to lose your power for a week is, I reckon, a pretty pretty tough situation because everything that we have is dependent on power. Look, isn't that the truth? Now, one day, go home and turn your main switch off yeah. and see how... And it's quite ironical because what you do, you think, all right, I'm going to live without power. Okay, now what do I do? The first thing you do is go and try and turn the light switch. Oh, hang on, I haven't got power. Yeah. And you go, oh, okay, well, I'll put the... Ca- oh, I haven't, I haven't got power. Um, or I'll or go to the, the supermarket, com- oh, the garage door, that needs power. Or the, the, uh, it, well, I might just uh, turn on the computer or something and the router's out. Yep. Um, so, yes, power is the big thing and we're seeing that now with, you know, Glasgow and, and those particular endeavours trying to, to bring the bring the, um, the cost of power into the realms of uh, being environmentally ex- uh, sustainable. Uh, how they do those numbers, Mitchell, I really will never know, where they're saying one and a half degrees. How do they calculate that? I think it's a bit of a wing and a prayer myself. But, um, I mean, I'm not being... Uh, we've got to try, but I just don't know how they get it so exact uh, where they're saying they're going to bring the carbon down. But we need to get power, and I've often said, well, it, unless we can get green energy happening with hydrogen... Um, uh, you know, we're going to have to go nuclear. I don't see... Even in this room that we're in now, the listeners wouldn't know, but uh, I've been in here a couple of times and the power has gone out on air. And uh, you look around this room and you can see there's a lot of lights here and then the window kind of leads out into the foyer, which has a little bit of natural light, but not much. So when the power goes out here and we're surrounded by lights and buttons and things going off here, um, it just suddenly becomes very black and you've kind of got to find your your, your way out. It's very dark and uh, very ominous. So it's that sort of feeling when the power goes out. In fact... I remember one year when it was a bit stormy down here in Geelong and I think the power went out for the whole area. Um, I think there was maybe some problems with the transmission lines getting in power from other states or something and there was a lot of load shedding going on. And it sort of feels a bit apocalyptic when you have big storms, all the traffic lights are out, there's no street lights, no nothing. Um, It's a really bizarre feeling, I find. You know, you hear those and you look at those movies about the end of the world and I don't think they're realistic there's always something happening that would probably require power and you know it would be a it would be a dire situation to have no power and no well I I dare say I don't think we'd even have water out of the tap Mitchell. Uh, some people didn't in that situation where they were seven days without power up in the, the ranges um, their septic tanks are apparently powered so they um, couldn't use any sewerage facilities um, and then some of them needed power for water and hot water some electrical hot water so imagine not being able to take a shower for seven days I mean that's a challenge. Well it, it just makes a lie out of the you know the, the the model that we often float or on on television of of preppers, uh, but you'd want to have 
We want to have a backup generator, backup would generator, you not? wouldn't you? And plenty of, I mean, a generator always has to be powered by fossil fuel as far as I know, so you'd have to also have drums and drums and drums of diesel or something. Oh, and toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. We've seen that. Everyone needs that. That's the most important. Oh, there was this thing, thing online where a guy was getting ready to go overseas and because they hadn't um, travelled overseas for so long, they were a bit out of practice. It was a bit of a comedy skit. So what did he pack in his suitcase? Rolls and rolls and rolls of toilet paper. Is that That's right? What you need. Is that right? Isn't that a weird situation? I have a friend during the height of this pandemic, um, and he 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 managed a place down in Houston, a very expensive B and B. It was two thousand US a night. He said to me one day, he said, "You wouldn't believe this. We've got a lady up in the top, you know, place up the top unit or something, and she's ringing up continually saying, i 'I'm out of toilet paper.' So we're continually delivering." toilet paper rolls there and we know what's happening she's they're going into her bag so what is it what is it with the fascination with toilet i don't get that i feel like we've moved on a bit since those days but i do remember oh oh well that's a big statement Mitchell. Well, i think we have oh, i mean I don't know every time we went into lockdown this year we didn't have a massive um exodus of the toilet paper from the supermarkets but i do remember back at the start of the pandemic when toilet paper was in short supply and um it was really tough i mean even in corporations and things in offices um they had to <laughs> Keep a close watch on the toilet paper because you know, in workplaces, like for example here at the Pulse, in our toilets, we'd have rolls and rolls of it ready to go um, because you need it all the time. But people were putting it in their bags and it would just walk out the door. But, so uh, Someone should do a, a, a thesis on this. Because you have to have the toilet paper police. What is it? What is it? What's the fascination with that end of the operation that needs to be covered? I just don't get that. I think it's like any panic buying. I mean, it starts out maybe with a small element of truth, then the message gets spread around people very quickly that the toilet paper's running out. Yeah, but why toilet feeds... paper? Why not beans or... I can, it, I can... Go on. Well, I was just going to say, it feeds on itself. When someone whispers there might be a shortage of toilet paper tomorrow, you think, gee, I don't want to run out of toilet paper because that'd be a very unpleasant situation. But so but you go out and buy toilet paper, you tell the next person, and it just, like, it starts off with something very, very small. I don't know why in this case it was specifically toilet paper, but it was, and it just runs rampant, sends shockwaves through the community, like when there's a run on at a bank. I wonder if there's been a run on bidets since we've got back on our feet. <laughs> I've seen some people from Europe saying, uh, this toilet paper thing's ridiculous, the bidet is the way to go. <laughs> there's some really unusual bidets up in Indonesia, and I really can't get too... too explicit about it but they are quite scary um so there's a there's a weird one where it combines both the toilet and the bidet so can get yourself into a bit of trouble there if you push the wrong <laughs> button at the wrong time so but that could be the way of the future because you know toilet paper it needs a lot of resources i'm assuming to make it Although we'd have to have all the toilet paper now because didn't at the start of the pandemic all the facilities go into oversupply of toilet paper? They had rolls and rolls and rolls extra being produced. But fundamentally, as humans, we would use the same amount of toilet paper every day. So all of that surplus supply, that's got to go somewhere, doesn't it? It, it does, it does. But I always say to people, whenever you're buying toilet paper... Always buy the biggest pack for sale at the supermarket because, like, uh, well, unlike most things, toilet paper is the one product you will need every day until you die. Well, you can't. It doesn't go I hadn't off. Really thought about it. Well, I have been forced to think about it recently. You but can never have too much toilet paper because it doesn't. It's not perishable. You'll need it every day until you die. So why not? 
Mitchell, you're sounding like one of the people who ra- had a run on the supermarket. I, I don't think I've got enough, but the, if you talk, talk in those terms, I don't think I've got enough. When I heard a rumour going, I may have contributed to the problem and I feel terrible, <laughs> but I heard a rumour going around that there was going to be an issue uh, with toilet paper might have been in lockdown three. So I went to the nearest Aldi and do you know how guilty I felt walking out with two... Like it wasn't. Oh. Like the, it wasn't like in the uh, the oh videos you've seen where someone had a shopping trolley with about twenty cartons of the uh, the toilet paper. I had two packs of toilet paper, and do you know how guilty I felt walking out and uh, probably feeling the eyes of shame, people staring at me. Well, well, the um, you might have been on the nine o'clock news that night, with the, <laughs> but, but some people were buying it and re, uh, selling it on. Yeah, I, I did know that. Well, I think there was a bit of a thing at the start of the pandemic with sanitizers, all of those sorts of products, masks. I think we even spoke about it on this program, what the markup was on those disposable masks to the point where you were paying something like 2 or $3 for a little paper mask. And, you know, you buy a pack of 10, so that's $30. And I think there was a story that someone in the US um, brought in shipping containers full of sanitizer masks and then tried to sell it on eBay. And eBay said, no, we're going to have a policy now site-wide where we're not going to allow you to be seen to be profiting from the misfortune of others through a pandemic. Uh-oh. So we're banning you from selling it. So he suddenly had shipping containers full of hand sanitizer masks that he couldn't move on. Oh, what a tragedy for what him. A tra- well, <laughs> are you a bit sad? Because he was thinking, oh, well, this is great. I can it- like, buy this for maybe, I don't know, $10,000, sell it for $300,000 and pay for part of my retirement. Well, it's an interesting point you raise. In, a, in an emergency situation like that, what do you think is the protocol surrounding profiteering? Do you know, is it fair enough to say, well, he took the risk and he's dealing with the demand or he shouldn't be taking advantage of his fellow man that way? It's a big ethical dilemma, isn't it? Because um, I remember when there was, I think it was storms up in Queensland and I think a supermarket or a little convenience store got in trouble for selling bottled water and it might have been $24 for 24, you know, the big slabs where they have those individual little bottles. And I think they got into big trouble. They were seen to be price gouging. But at the same time, if uh, their costs went up because it was harder to get Mm. things in and out of that particular location because the roads were affected because of that storm. Um, So you've got to be a bit careful because even if you think you're doing it for the right reasons and yes, I incurred more costs to pass it on and I'm taking a risk getting all of this hand sanitizer in that I may not be able to move on. The risk is that um, people will see you and it'll become a public relations exercise and uh, you'll lose your your reputation. Your reputation, exactly. But I think I'd be holding my head up and saying, look, I am am allowed a, a reasonable profit increase given demand and supply, but not over the top. But that's where it becomes challenged because, you know, for each each person has this idea of what a reasonable profit is. Like for some people, they say, oh, I couldn't live on less than $300,000 a year because that's my salary, you know, whereas some people would be um, lucky well, to get 50000 So, yeah, it's all Mitchell, in the Can I draw a comparison with airfares now? Yes. And airfares coming, people coming home. They're spending ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 trying to get home. Is Are we applying the same reasoning here? I'd hope for that price you'd get um, to sit at the sharp end of the plane. Well, <laughs> you'd probably get a flying license. <laughs> but, but, but are we allowed to use the same analogy? That's the you thing. Could, for twenty grand, you could actually get a flying license, couldn't you? You could, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's right. But then the airlines would say, well, our costs have gone up and the crew have to wear PPE and it's much harder to operate and we could be shut down at any moment. Very hard to quantify. Yeah. Um, But speaking of uh, airfares, I've been looking at airfares and 
the prices are actually quite low at the moment if you're traveling yes, within are. Australia. Yes, they um, are. Because I was talking with someone who might be looking to just go up to Sydney maybe in about January just for an opportunity to see people up there and, you know, get out of the state for the first time in however long it's been. And um, all of the airlines, lots of availability, very reasonable prices. Well, my friend Melissa is heading off to London uh, at the end of the month and back... I think, 3rd or 4th of January. And is she trying to see people over there? She's or? going to see relatives. She's taking her daughter. Yep. She's got return fares for both of them for 3750 I think that's really, really good. And which airline? Singapore. Yeah. Yep. Singapore Airlines, I've heard that uh, people have been looking and they're quite reasonably priced because um, someone else I know was looking at going to London and was also looking at Singapore Airlines. So I think that's what they're trying to do, isn't it? A bit of a, a strategy to get people to book again, offering these very cheap fares. Well... The the cards, the goalposts have moved dramatically in the last few days in terms of this virus and not, you know, the infection rates of this virus with the production of the two new pills, one from Merck, one from Pfizer. Have you heard anything about them? Not a great deal, but I've been watching. But um, I'm actually very concerned because I was w- watching on the news last night the rates of infection and death in Germany, I've heard, are quite high. But anyway, continue. Well... <sighs> Yeah, I'd like to sort of visit that some other some other time. You can't just quote the numbers. It'd be interesting to... Are you saying deaths have gone up too? That's what they said on the, the news. You, you'd have to know amongst vaccinated and unvaccinated, yeah. of course. And sometimes I think they're quite reticent to actually release that information. Oh, is that... Why is that? I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, maybe it... Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I do know that there was a push uh, on one of the TV programs. There was, what was her name? Karen Phelps, who was a former member of Parliament yes. for a very short time. Yeah, like Karen. But she was saying how we shouldn't be labelling people that pass away from COVID as having pre-existing conditions because that unfairly targets them. Whereas I think mm, it's a nice thought, but at the same time, it's probably information that's pertinent, isn't it? We need to know, did someone die from COVID if they had nothing wrong with them at all? Or did they die because because they had a whole sleuth of pre-existing conditions. So it's that sort of, I think, you know, creating an us versus them, targeting people. I think that was what they were keen to avoid. Look, uh, just getting back to the Merck pill uh, and the Pfizer pill, apparently they have to be taken between the first and the fifth day of infection, showing infection. And When you the, say showing infection, well, do you I mean symptoms? Symptoms. Uh, this is a very grassroots... Uh, just, you know, analogy. And they reduce hospitalisation by up to 90%. So, very effective and big game changer, both of these. Apparently, one cannot be used in pregnancy. So, there are surrounding conditions with it. But uh, these these are big moves forward for controlling this virus. What percentage of the population is pregnant at any given time? I'd imagine it would be quite low. Well, it's just one of the things that there are guidelines that has to be observed yep. with it, but and I'm sure there are plenty more too, but the the, the transportability of these this pill these pills and the um, the courses would be so much easier into third world countries than what we're seeing with the with the you know, the difficulties of tra- transport 
transporting this vaccine needs to be kept at such low temperatures and things. Yeah, well, to transport it into a third world country when you have to keep it at minus 70. I've watched those TV programs on SBS where they try and bring vaccinations to remote communities in sub-Saharan Africa and it's very difficult. They have to sort of hike through because they don't have roads going in and out, these remote communities. So I think there was one where they were kind of hiking through the jungle carrying vaccines in cooler bags Wow! and uh, there might have even been one where you had to sort of kayak up Whoa. a river to get to this remote community. Yeah, um, so, solo. Yeah, imagine um, how you would do it at minus 70 with the Pfizer vaccine. Now, just digressing, exactly. Um, now, just digressing and getting back to power failures. Today, I announced Talia Ellis to come on the program. Now, she hasn't been able to be contacted and she is in a remote area and I think it could be something to do with power failure. So, what we have for you, or who we have for you, is Karen Ellis. No relation. But Karen is the owner or co-owner of Camel Treks Australia. And she's based at a place called Beltana Station in the northern Flinders Ranges. Uh, very interesting person. A terrific lady. I've known her for quite some time. If any of you have seen the movie Tracks with Joy Davidson... Sorry, um, Robin Davidson. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. Great movie. Great movie. Very well shot Australian movie. Yeah, you'd probably make the comparison with Karen. A real, a really uh, can-do kind of person. So uh, we'll move on to that in a minute. Yep. You're driving, so, yeah. you know, it's entirely your call. You could uh, shut my mic off and just do I the show for the rest of the... here that doesn't go into my phone. Well, what we might do is take a break first and then use that time during the break Um uh, we'll use that time to make sure that we can okay. connect them up. Here we so. go. Coming back to you soon. Until midday, you're listening to 11 on Friday on 94.7 The Pulse. That's all right. We're just pushing. Vic is running the panel for the first time today and doing a fantastic job, I might add. Um, how are you feeling so far, Vic? A little rattled, Mitchell. Karen, are you there? Hello, Karen. Yes, yes, I'm here. How are you, Karen? Good to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Nice to hear from you, Vic. Yeah, now you're out in the Flinders Ranges, Karen, right out there. Uh, I suppose you'd say how far north of Port Augusta if you were going to drive? Uh, well, there are, there's the beginning of the Flinders Ranges that would be maybe five hours from where we are. Then we have the central Flinders Ranges and I'm in the far north Flinders Ranges. Mm. For me to do my shopping in Port Augusta is a six-hour round trip. Is that where you go? Typically, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, just for the folks listening, Karen, we've just, just got to set, set the scene. Karen lives in a remote location as we've just discussed she's owner or co-owner of uh, of camel tracks australia which means she actually is the business and she gets out there and she walks with clients for typically typically how long karen how long would you be away uh, it depends on what a, a client group or a school camp group would like. Uh, we used to do overnights and short trips, but the demand for longer trips was greater. So nowadays, the minimum period of time that people head out with us is four days. 
and then the longer trips are nine days and we operate in an area Vic, that's about one and a half thousand square kilometres to probably fit most of Melbourne and the suburbs in that area and we take people out to Lake Torrens which is yeah. the second largest salt lake in the southern hemisphere. So that that rain, that how much rain did you get by the way? It varied. Um, we have personally had uh, in the rain right now 21 millimetres, which is good here. And uh, because where our location gets a lot of water fed down from the ranges and passes through our station, so the creeks are flooding here. We we went to uh, drive out of the station yesterday, but we were flooded in. Are you actually on Beltana Station? Yes, yeah, I'm talking to you from Beltana Station now. Now, it, it's a really, really unusual place. It's off the road, what, 15k or something? What is it off the road? It's it's off the main drag? It depends which part of the station. I, Beltana Station is one of the largest stations in the far north Finders Ranges, so we actually have seven stations that border our station. Mm-hmm. And you keep your, your animals there. How many camels do you hold in your string? Too many. Can, yeah. Listeners can ring me later if they want to buy a camel. <laughs> no <laughs> joke. I, I've, got, I've got a mix of females and males here and have sufficient for looking after our older camels so they don't have to work so hard. And I have, you know, a constant small number of younger camels that we're, we're training uh, for trek. So It's a long-term thing, isn't it? What do you do when they get old and they've serviced and kept you and been your companion for all those years? What do you do What do you do with them? You just you just have to hold on to them. Yes, well, it's the worry of, of many of our guests that come out with us. They're like, oh, what are you going to do with that one now? It's getting old. But, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty soft when it comes to our animals yep. because they, they're our livelihood. Yeah, sure. Life and we sort of camped out with them seven months of the year. I sleep next to them in yep. my bag. That would be really... A retired that, that, That's different. They live a life of luxury out here. There's, this is just camel paradise. And, and I'm happy to talk with you about the history of Beltana, which goes back to the very first camels and the Afghans arriving into South Africa. Yeah, we'll get onto that in a sec. I'd, I'd like to have a quick talk to you about that. Um, now, just to put another thing, just to clarify something else, Karen. Um, coincidentally, I, I was going to have Talia Ellis on, and, and she can't make it. And coincidentally, Rex Ellis does some camel safaris, but you're not related to him, but you do know him. I'd just like to make that point clear for the listeners. <laughs> but but uh, with getting back to that, situation with camels do you breed them at all do you have little do you have young camels what's a young camel called by the way okay a young camel is called a calf still a calf okay right okay so i've worn several different hats in my camel career yep so i'm i'm sadly hurtling towards 50 as you know and um have been working with camels since i was 21 and so um i'm also the secretary for the nunanjara camel company in the capacity of responding to export inquiries and I have actually flown with camels and delivered them to sheikhs in the United Arab I've done a lot of work for Austrade and visited um, countries where camels are very much part of um, you know normal everyday life and viewed quite differently to how they're viewed here in Australia When you say quite differently, any concerns about leaving them? Sorry, any concerns about leaving them? When you go, you deliver them and 
and you walk away? Uh, yes, no, well, I mean, the, the camels that we've sold overseas, the Australian government has really strict guidelines in terms of what are the parameters for, for allowing camels to leave the country. No, these camels are treated better than, than how a lot of us are, are living in, in homes here in Australia. They've, they are... They've got like air conditioning sprinklers above them when it gets really hot and beautiful facilities. Um, but in the United Arab Emirates, um, you know, camels are highly regarded. But I would say overall, my experience in India, um, the Sahara, so in Africa and uh, Mongolia. I've travelled through the Sahara too, uh, Karen. Sorry, Vic. I travelled through the Sahara too, so that's a probably subject for another day. But I know that you did go overseas hosting tours, didn't you? With and they were with the two hump dromedaries, dromedaries were they? I spent a lot of time in the southern uh, Gobi Desert in Mongolia. Well, the two humped camels. Yeah, and how do you find the temperament comparison? Comparison there. Well, you know, I just love camels, Vic. So no, 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 no. But do you see any difference in the behavioural characteristics of the two types, the our camel and their and that camel? Are, are there any differences in controlling them? The people that I work with, this is kind of answering that question in a roundabout way, but those people really look after their animals. So I would tend to say, if you think of in our own backyards, there are happy dogs and there are not happy dogs and it really boils down to the ownership handling of the animals so fortunately in my life I've, I've, I've got to know Bactrians as quite happy animals and yeah they're, they're different they're, they are um, handled differently over there so but uh, yeah they're happy yeah so that's probably all been put to bed with with COVID any plans to re- resurrect that I really don't know and uh, this is uh, the million dollar question at the moment. We're kind of inundated with emails from uh, guests that couldn't get to us in 2020 or 2021 and we're, we're frantically trying to find places for everyone and at the same time field inquiries from people that are wanting to come out and visit us because I think everyone really wants to have an adventure pretty soon and enjoy uh, getting away from home. Well, that would be... And and who does the cooking on the trip? You've got a designated cook. That'd all be done camp oven, I assume. Yeah, so the Cameliers generally do the cooking as well. We, um, yeah, we, we do great meals out here in cast iron cookware, cooked over the yeah. fire and, uh, you know, dampers and cakes and all sorts of things we churn out as well as roasts and vegetarian dishes for those that, that are looking for... Karen, I know that my experience with camels is rather limited, but I do know that bull camels can be rather dangerous. Have you had any tight squeaks in your periods out there? Well, again, I'm, I, <laughs> I, I've walked in amongst yards full of bull camels, um, like hundreds of bull camels all in together, and I've actually had lead camels that have been bull camels. Um, it's really thick. The problem is if you have a bull camel in rut and then you're trying to that, lead away females from that bull camel. Yeah, I was referring to that, yeah. You've got to really know what you're doing in that in that environment and have really good yards to facilitate um, safe movement, I guess, in those circumstances. But I have a bull here at the moment called Romeo and some of my ladies have really enjoyed Romeo's company. Others are quite disgusted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I'm expecting uh, babies in the near future. 
So I could just imagine a Hollywood scene where you're walking along and a half-grown camel is in tow and following along and learning. Is that does that the way? Is that the way it happens? Yeah, absolutely. No, oh, that'd be a lovely scene, Karen. Yeah, well, you know, I guess the the whole thing here is so unusual for people when they come from a city landscape, and we often take out over twenty camels, and they're a mix of riding camels and pack camels, and they blend so seamlessly into the orange red sand dunes out here with vistas as far as the eye can see. Um, it's great having people come out here and remind us of how fortunate we are. Yeah, look, they're such an imposing animal. They're they're so impressive to me, camels. I just I just love the way they're constructed and and just their. I, I don't say I know a whole lot about their demeanour, but but I just love what they do and how they're made and and how they're so robust in that environment. So I could imagine you'd get very you'd get very, you know, connected with them. And just going back to that movie we spoke about um, tracks with Robin Davidson uh, there was a couple of scenes in that where they're really quite moving um, one was with the dog um, Diggity and took a bait I, mm. I, uh, do you remember that yeah yeah well I've been through that twice exactly that same scene twice at night by myself in the bush taking a taking a bait and it's the most horrific it's 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 as close as you could get to having a relative pass and 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 usually you're by yourself and there's no support um having to shoot the dogs and um 1080 is a shocking thing it's a terrible thing we're probably digressing a bit but that was a good scene in the movie uh there have been some other movies made out there karen tell us about it what what other movies that you would say uh, a, lo- a lot of australian movies do get shot in the area because there's um parachulna and a few other places there that i know have hosted movies yeah yeah there's been a, a lot of movies um this is where i'll sort of fall short of being able to... Uh, Gallipoli had some filming done out here. The yep. one with um, Guy Pearce and uh, Robert Patterson was done uh, not so many years ago. Um, uh, I can't... There was the Wolf, Wolf Creek. Um, Wolf Creek, we the, seen the filming done along the roads here when he was here, the tourist. Um, specifically on Beltana, there's been a number of films. Um, it's a popular area for filming. The the other thing is the uh, now we've we've got um, uh, Breaker Morant and uh, Rabbit Proof Fence. They were shot out there. I know that probably not in Beltana, but uh, close to um, very big part of uh, Australian cinematography. Uh, that area. It's just the edge of the outback, so probably not too far away, and yet get got all the elements that are needed for a good movie. And um, yeah, I, I've. I've, I've really enjoyed being at Beltana. Tell us a bit about the town. Now, let me ask you the question, Karen. Has it suffered from the property boom? <laughs> um, actually, uh, yes. Yeah, I'll bet it has. <laughs> um, there's been a big hike in people buying properties in rural areas in general. Uh, so we'll go a little bit south to Hawker that you know very well, Vic. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no properties for sale in Hawker at the moment. And normally Hawker has an 11-year cycle as an average time frame that a, a, a place will take to get sold once it's listed. Um, there's just no properties for sale up here. Um, well, In terms of Beltana Township itself, I don't think there's anything available there either. It, to anyone listening, it's, it's definitely worth a visit, Beltana. Is there a shop there? 
Uh, no, there's not. There's a community centre and uh, the hole's being done up quite beautiful. It's got a stone underground cellar and um, beautiful building up, up the top. So that there's community members there that open that. But historic buildings, I mean, it, it, just to, again, for the for the listeners, it's it's just south of Lee Creek, if, uh, if anyone's listening, but and they know Lee Creek. But getting back to it, uh, the history with Beltana now, Flynn of the Inland came from there, didn't he? Yeah, so John Flynn, um, he set up the first inland mission here. Yeah. In and those of uh, those of you who are wondering who, who's John Flynn, John Flynn's uh, life work led to the RFDS, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and uh, he was a, a padre who moved around on a camel. Yep. He saw the need for um, setting up uh, inland missions with nursing services for people in remote locations. Um, yeah, Beltana itself was one of the furthest stations that, that there was for a long period of time, and uh, it was when Sir Thomas Elder he was Thomas Elder then purchased the station. Oh, he purchased Beltana, did he? He did, yes. Yep, this was the home of Thomas Elder, Elder's real estate, Elder's... Well, you know, you know what? South Australia has got quite a history of famous people, including your great self there, Karen. Um, sure, thanks. I mean, his brother-in-law was um, Bar Smith as well, and Thomas and Bar Smith were quite philanthropists in Adelaide City. Um, but yeah, the camel story originated from here. John McKinley uh, had some camels left over from the Burke and Wills expedition. Wow. And Thomas Elder and Samuel Stuckey were out on horseback and they came across him with his camels. And they decided, okay, let's bring camels into Australia. And it was in 1866 that Samuel Stuckey returned to Port Augusta with camels. They were offloaded and brought up to Beltana Station. And it's said that over 60,000 camels um, were bred here on Beltana. How many? Over 60,000. Goodness, because a lot of them would have gone north to Maree, wouldn't they, for the Afghan cameleers? The camels were employed in so many areas of establishing Australia's inland. They were used in the gold fields. They were used for delivering supplies. They were... They were pivotal in finding the opals out at Cupertini. Um, they were used for laying down the railway track. Of yeah, the yeah, that would have been hard to open that country without them. Actually, it's fascinating reason, reason, uh, reading the politics of that uh, particular exercise from the government of South Australia just after Federation or just before Federation, trying to establish uh, outlying areas and the, and the buildings that they built throughout the area and they all have a sameness about them the post offices and the hotels uh all got that same sort of architectural look about them and that was all in an effort to establish and to try and um you know i don't know gain some sort of control over the area the the frontier so um but camels were a big part of that no doubt about it um the, the so the elder brothers were were there in the area um we thomas and what was the other one Samuel Stuckey, Samuel. For, for Thomas Elder, he managed an outstation uh, on the property. Oh, yeah. He was the one that went and obtained the very first camels that came to Australia with their Afghan um, handlers. So some of the other South Australians that have got quite a lot of history and, and um, um, uh, a lot of achievements are Sydney Kidman, 
Sir Douglas Mawson used to go to the area quite a lot, uh, up into that northern Flinders to look at the rock strata. R.M. Williams, who was... Um, now, he, he started... I think his first, as a young man, he opened a mission just north of you there. Um, can you think of what the name of it is? It's slipping my mind at the moment. But No, I can't. I, I will... Um Anyway, it doesn't matter. But R.M. Williams. Um, now, Hubert Wilkins. Do you know anything about him? About who? Sorry, Dick. Hubert Wilkins. He's a South Australian. And he's from down, he's from down at uh, 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 Mount Bryan. Um, okay. Hallett Way. And an, an incredibly um, enigmatic figure. He, he was involved in... Um, he was involved in in all sorts of achievements during the war, and um, just to probably encapsulate this, the life of this man, he was eventually his ashes were scattered by the Americans over the northern ice cap. That's what they thought of oh, him. Wow. So, yeah, he tried to be researching. He, he's an inc- oh, incredible achievements. Uh, Dick Smith actually rebuilt his house there at Mount Bryan, and it's worth a drive. You have to drive right up in the hills. But he came from this 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 little house. It is very very unusual Australian, but very little known. But you know, South Australia has those those people. There's lots of un, in, unusual individuals there. Um, Karen has been lovely talking to you. And um, what's on for today? Uh, what's on for today? We're cleaning up after a um, heavy rainfall and, uh, yeah, just waiting for the waters to subside, really, so that we can uh, start to drive. It's a, it's a lot of clay soil here, so yes. once we get over 10 millimetres of rain, that usually means that we're, we're grounded for a bit. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, good, Karen. Yeah, look forward to catching up with you and Paul when I'm up there. Yeah, likewise. If I can do a super quick shout out to my nephews, Eli and Amos, and wish my younger sister, who lives in Geelong, right. a very happy 40th birthday this week. Happy 40th. Um, all right, Karen, good talking to you. We'll, we'll see you up there. Okay, bye. See you, bye. Until midday, you're listening to 11 on Friday on 94.7 The Pulse. And you're back with Vic and Mitchell. Just about there for the day. And uh, how have you gone, Vic? Your first uh, session oh, driving us uh, on air. You've done a great job over the I'm last sure hour. I'm sure I'm going to have nightmares tonight, Mitchell. <laughs> There'll be these slides will be chasing me around the room. You've done a great job. And uh, I tell you what, um, you'll be right to go. I think next week you'll be just fantastic. And then the week after, I'm going away, so you'll have to do it yourself. But I was talking to Liz today, and she's hopeful of being able to come back very soon. She's got a few staffing interviews tomorrow to try and fill some positions. Oh, she'd be most welcome. I'd really like to see her back again. And I'm just reading about state politics and uh, the Liberal Party pre-selections uh, closing, and uh, there's been some interesting challenges underway now for state politics, including David Davis is apparently trying to move from the Upper House to take over Tim Smith's old seat oh, of Q, wow. and apparently okay. Michael O'Brien is facing a challenge. So, Big stuff. Um, maybe a final word for you before we throw to the midday news? A uh, little Curtis. I was just hearing on the news, little Curtis, 22 weeks old, born the world, uh, world record for a prem baby. In 22 weeks. Good on you, little Curtis. We love you. Good on you. All right. Well, thank you very much, Vic. Um, it's been great to spend the morning with you. I'll be back next Friday for the last time for a couple of weeks because I'll be going away. And it is now time for the midday news. Right. I'll be back with you Monday, 9 o'clock, right Good here Mitchell. on See The you Pulse. Next week. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11.
or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.